Good morning, brothers and sisters. I pray you are all feeling wonderful today. I pray that all your needs are met. I pray that you have been enduring and conquering those demons. <laughs> it's definitely been a spiritual battle on my end. and I've been really feeling the weight of so many different things. and I've been trying to practice uh, speaking better words and having better thoughts, right? And, and taking taking every thought under authority of Christ, right? So that I'm not allowing myself to get lost in thought. You know, sometimes thinking too much is really, really a bad thing. Anyways, I wanted to come back to you guys and and uh, talk about the study with Chuck Missler that I mentioned in the end of my last podcast. And it's called Knowing God, an Extraterrestrial Message. And I love this guy. I love listening to him. I love listening to all his messages. He loves the ancient language. And he breaks it down and explains it. And in this in this uh, video, he breaks down language. You know, the language of God. When, when God gave names, they had a meaning, right? And not only did they have a meaning, each individually, but collectively, he had a message for his people. And that, I'm just going to leave it at that. So grab a cup of coffee, beloved, and let's go ahead and dive into this message because it's about an hour long and I'm going to have to break it down a little bit to fit it into this podcast. Anyways, I hope you guys enjoy. God bless you with open eyes and open ears to receive the message he has for you today. It's a delight to be with you, but I have to tell you, as one who spent his career in the scientific community, I get so tired of people who mean well say you can't prove the Bible, but then they'll make some positive statement. I'm so tired of hearing that preamble, this presumption that you can't prove the Bible. Yes, you can. This document, this collection of documents you have in your lap, the Bible, is incredible and you can demonstrate that it is of extraterrestrial origin. Its origin is from outside our time domain. And I want to give you some examples of things to help demonstrate that this morning. Um, one of the questions that we often get asked is, are there hidden messages in the Bible? And uh, there's a lot of nonsense published in that area, but yes, there are. In fact, Solomon tells us it is the glory of God to conceal a thing and the duty and honor of kings to search out a matter. Amen. So we're going to explore some of those things this morning. And I believe that before we're through, you'll have some examples that will strengthen your confidence that that Bible, the Word of God, that we also depend on, is in fact a supernatural document. A unique document. Amen. But I'll start by asking you a riddle, and that is, who is the oldest man in the Bible? Methuselah. Anyone? Methuselah. Good for you. Yes, Methuselah lived 960, 969 years. He's the oldest, the longest life in the Bible, and uh, yet he uh, died before his father. 
Enoch was his father. Yeah, that puzzles you a little bit, doesn't it? He's the oldest man in the Bible, yet he died before his father. Say, I cheated on you. You see, everybody forgets <laughs> who his father was. Enoch was His father was a guy by the name of Enoch. And Enoch was an interesting guy. Uh, in the, and we'll talk a little bit about him. He, at the age of 65, something happened in his life that from that point on, he walked with God for another 300 years. Now, what happened was, I should explain something else. The flood of Noah did not come as a surprise. The flood of Noah was preached on for four generations, surprisingly enough. Yeah. But when Enoch's son was born, God told him that as long as his son is alive, the judgment of that flood would be held back. And indeed, so he names his son Methuselah. That's a Hebrew word from two root words. The word muth, which means his death, that occurs 125 times in the Old Testament. And the verb shalak, which means his death, shall, it means to bring or send forth. The combination means his death shall bring or send forth. Strange title, but that's his name. And we discover when we study Genesis chapter 5 carefully that Methuselah was 187 when he had a son by the name of Lamech, and Lamech was 182 when he had a son by the name of Noah. And uh, it was in the 600th year of Noah that the flood came. And the, the, in other words, the year that Methuselah died is the year the flood came. And that was the prophecy. Can you girls imagine what it was like to raise that kid? <laughs> Every time he caught a cold, the entire neighborhood would go into panic, right? As long as he's alive, everything's right. But when he dies, that's when the Lord did come. Like the flood did come. Excuse me, when the flood did come. Before I go further, I want to give you a little flavor in the Hebrew language because it's very different. Most alphabets are phonetic. They help us to pronounce the words. The Hebrew letters, the 22 of them in their alphabet, carry meaning, not just sound. Amen. The first letter in their alphabet, even the word alphabet is Hebrew, by the way, the alphabet, the, the aleph, it was originally written like an ox's head, showing on the left up there. And uh, we are up there, aren't they? Okay, good. Uh, being the first letter, it means first, or strength, or leader. That's what the flavor of that letter is. And uh, the second letter is Beth. It was originally written like a little house or tent. And the word Beth means house and, uh, or family. And uh, Bethlehem is the house of bread. Bethel, the house of God. The word Beth, the letter itself, carries the concept of a house. Now, when you take an Aleph and a Beth together, you have the word Ab. And if it's a, it, that means it's the leader of the house, who is, is the father. It's the word for father. Now, there's another Hebrew letter called He. Again. I believe that if you study languages, even on Duolingo, I have Hebrew, German, Italian, Japanese, and Spanish, and uh, I believe that the English language was just written in a way to confuse people and to, to cast spells, honestly, and Hebrew is a fantastic, like, it's such a wonderful language, it's, it's difficult to learn for me, <laughs> but... I encourage you guys to look into it. 
probably like an open window or two hands raised. It's a breath, if you will. And it uh, uh, can mean behold or revealed. It also is like a breeze or a breath or a wind or a spirit. The hey, you even breathe. We all remember Henry Higgins in, in uh, my fairly, in Hartford, Hereford, hurricanes hardly ever happen. You get Elijah Doolittle to get her H's right. Same idea there. Well, if you take the hey and put it in the middle of a word, it, the collective represents the essence of that. The word ab was father. If you put the hey in the middle of it, you get ahab, which reveals the heart or essence of the father. That is the Hebrew word for love, because love is the essence of the father. See, the point I'm trying to get across, the meaning is in the letters, not just the sound. And so, now, you may, you may recall in Genesis 17, both Abram and Sarai had their names changed, right? What God did is simply put a hey in the middle of their, of their names, a breath. He filled them with the spirit. The, the, the spirit was uh, infused in their lives. Abraham, Sarah, the hey was what connoted that, if you will. Well, as we read our Bible, we really get enchanted with, of course, the first two chapters of the creation. That's pretty exciting stuff. You get to chapter 3. That's the seed plot of the whole Bible is rooted in chapter 3. Chapter 4 is the, the murder of uh, uh, Abel by Cain, and you know that story. From chapter 6 on, we have the flood of Noah, and there's a lot of action there. So the book of Genesis is a very exciting, action-filled book. But when you get to Genesis chapter 5, it's one of those chapters you you'd like to skip. It's just a genealogy. And if you're in a, in a reading plan, you'd like to sort of skip over that, get into the interesting stuff. No, Genesis 5. What is it all about? Well, it's a genealogy of ten people. It's hard to Adam, read. Adam, Seth, Enoch, <laughs> Kenan, Mahalalel, Yared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. See, the problem with that list, it's not translated for you. Right. That is transliterated. Those are approximations of how they were pronounced. I wonder what might, might lie behind these other names. Let's see if we can go through this a little bit. That name Adam is pretty straightforward. That comes from Adomah, which means man. No problem with that one. That's follow, he's followed by a son by the name of Seth. The word Seth means appointed. And uh, how do we know that? Because he tells us that in the previous chapter. Eve said when he was born, for God hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel whom Cain slew. And you all know what Cain and Abel. Everybody asks me, where did Cain get his wife, right? I want you guys to grab a pen during this part and, and write down the names and their meanings. That way you can share the message and, and just share this little bit of fantastic like fact from scripture with your your friends believers and non-believers alike, just to show them how wonderful our Father is. He married his brother's sister because he was able. Thought I'd help you with that, right? All right, we'll move on. He has a son by the name of Enosh. Now, this is a heavy name to go around with. The word Enosh, Enosh means mortal, frail, or miserable. Can you imagine having him on a sports team? Hey, miserable, you're on our team. It doesn't really work, especially in school, I imagine. Okay, and it comes from the root, anash, which means incurable. It's usually used of a wound or grief or woe or sickness, something like that. 
Canaan now, not Canaan, Canaan is a, uh, can mean sorrow, dirge, or elegy. Don't confuse it with Canaan. Balaam, and, uh, in Numbers 24, develops a pun on his name. It's another whole story. But Canaan means sorrow. These are pretty heavy names, miserable and so forth. So when Canaan has a, a, a son, he decides this enough's enough. So he names his son, when he's born, a mouthful but a wonderful name, Mahalalel. And Mahal, which means blessed or praised one, and El, the name for God. Mahalalel, kind of hard to pronounce, but what a great name, quite a contrast to his, his elders. The blessed God is what his name means. He, mentioned, he names his son Yared, and there's a story behind that I'll spare you here, but the name Yarad, which simply means shall come down. And um, that may have a connection to Genesis 6, but that's a whole another story. That brings us to Enoch. We've mentioned already, but what does the word Enoch mean? It turns out that Enoch is an academic phrase, which means commencement, or more narrow, teaching. Enoch suggests teaching, if you will. And then, of course, he has Methuselah, which I've mentioned means it, that Moose and Shalak really mean his death shall bring. The year that Methuselah dies is indeed the year the, the, the flood came. That brings us to Lamech. Now, here's a case where the root word is still in our English language. And we see it evident in the word uh, English lament or lamentation, if you will. In the Hebrew, the word Lamech suggests despairing. Despairing, fair enough. Now, Lamech has a son by the name of Noah, and that's de he's derived from Nacham, which means relief, to bring relief or comfort. And uh, we know that from his father mentions that. Uh, he's, uh, Lamech says in chapter five, uh, 5, says he called his name Noah, saying, this same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. Okay, so here's our genealogy now. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Yared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. That's the way, that's a rough way they might pronounce it. Let's translate it with what we've learned. Well, Adam means man. Seth, appointed. Enosh, mortal. Canaan, sorrow. Mahalalel, the blessed God, shall come down teaching that his death, whose death? God's death, shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. Man is appointed mortal sorrow. Man is appointed mortal sorrow. But the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death, whose death? God's death, shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. Staggering, staggering discovery here, tucked away in the genealogy of, uh, of uh, Noah. Wow. This tells you several things. It tells you that God's plan of redemption was not a knee-jerk reaction to a surprise that Adam sinned. Amen. He knew he would from the beginning. He always knows. He, uh, creation, he, he appointed those that would be saved. When did God first have his mind on you? Ephesians 1.4, before the foundation of the world. Mm -hmm. God knew, he knew it, it would take a display of infinite love to remedy the situation. That nothing less than the death of God himself would avail to pay, to pay for the wickedness of sin. But the other thing about this that you learn, well, there's no way you'll ever convince me 
that a group of Jewish rabbis contrived to hide a summary of the Christian gospel tucked away in a genealogy in the Torah? No way. No way. And yet here it is, right there staying. You see, the thing I want to get across is in your Bible, it's an integrated design. Every detail is there deliberately. The, Old Te- the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. There's an example. I'll show you some others. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. It works both ways. Mm-hmm. And we'll look at a few of those examples. <clears throat> so we're looking at the book of Genesis here. If we study the letter, the, and I should point out something before we go further. You need to understand that all languages flow towards Jerusalem. <laughs> Nations that are east of Jerusalem go from right to left. Not only Hebrew, but Arabic, Sanskrit, you name it. All nations west of Jerusalem go from left to right. Not only English and German and English, Latin, of course, uh, but also Cyrillic, Greek, what have you. All those that are west going. Anyway, so they go in different directions. But now here's the book of Genesis, and remember it goes from right to left. And the, the, the most venerated part of the Old Testament, the Tanakh, is called the Torah, which in Hebrew is four letters, the equivalent of our T-O-R-H, if you will. Well, it's interesting, if you go to the first Tau, or T equivalent, and uh, then you count 49, 7 squared, 49 letters, and you come to a Vav, which acts like an O in effect, and then you count 49 letters, and you come to a Resh, and then you count, which is like an R, and then 49 letters, you get to the hey, and that spells Torah. <laughs> now you say, well, that's kind of an interesting coincidence. It happens in 49-letter intervals that it spells the name of the books of Moses. All right, that's kind of a curious oddity. Not sure it means anything. You go to Exodus, and the strange thing, the same thing happens. There's a Tau, 49 letters to a Vav, 49 letters to a Resh, and 49 letters to a He. And again, it spells Torah. Now, when it does that a second time, you get a strange feeling. Someone's playing games here. Indeed, the Holy Spirit may be doing this. Let's watch and see what happens here. The next book is Leviticus, and when you look at it, that doesn't happen, and you almost feel a sense of relief. But when you go to the next one, Numbers, you find it happens, but backwards. There's a He, the Resh, and a Vav, and a Tau. It spells Torah backwards. I have no idea how they discovered this. Somebody had time on their hands, I think. You go to Deuteronomy and the same equivalent thing happens. So you stand back from all of this. In 49, 7 squared, 49 letter sequences, you find Genesis, spelled right, Torah, spelled right. Numbers and, and Deuteronomy is spelled backwards. That's pretty weird. Well, let's go back and take a more careful look at the book of Leviticus. And when we examine that, we discover in the Hebrew that at seven-letter intervals, it spells yod He vav He, the unpronounceable name of God. Some people call it Yahweh. And so that's interesting. You, see, you look at this whole thing. Exodus, just Exodus, they go forward. Numbers, Deuteronomy, backwards. Right in the middle, you have the name. The Torah always points to yod He vav He. One of the unpronounceable names of God, and you want used of Yehoshua also, our our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's enjoy that, okay? Yes. 
You know, every time I do this, I get goosebumps because that is so staggering to see that there. Let me show you something that to me is even a bigger surprise. Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 38. Now, that's a pretty weird chapter. It's one that many parents wish wasn't in the Bible because it's this sordid story of Judah's sin with Tamar. And, uh, you know, when you study Genesis, from 37 to the end is a fabulous wrap-up of this incredible book. In, in Genesis 37, you have the, the beginning of the saga of Joseph, who, after being sold by his brothers, rises to become the prime minister of the world. Incredible saga from 37 to 50, end of the book, uh, chapter 50. But in chapter 38, they insert this story that is a sordid thing, how Judah is tricked into having sex with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and then who gives birth to two sons out of wedlock. And many people wonder, what's that doing in the Bible? And, uh, well, it's in there because it's part of the messianic line for a lot of reasons, but we won't get into that here. The real question is, why is the Holy Spirit recorded here? Let me show you something else about it. And uh, this is Genesis 38, again in Hebrew, going from right to left, and it's interesting that we discover in that text, at 49 letter intervals again, the name of Boaz. That catches our attention. Then we find at 49 letter intervals, we find the number of Ruth, the name of Ruth. And Boaz and Ruth, wow, okay, what's going on here? And then we find in 49 letter intervals, the name Obed. And then at 49 letter intervals, we find Yishe, or Jesse as we would say it. And then we find at 49 letter intervals, the name of David. Now, so we have here, apparently, rather astonishingly, we have Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, and David at 49-letter intervals in chronological order. <laughs> we have the genealogy of David. <laughs> Indeed. Now realize, this is in Genesis, long before, the, after the books of Moses, we have Joshua. Then we have Judges, then 1 Samuel. Long before David's around, David's genealogy is plugged We know that God had planned to have David as the king from the beginning. Amen. Israel's wow. impatient. They want a king, so he lets them have Saul for a while to learn some lessons. But David was ordained in Genesis 38. Staggering, staggering implication. Genesis Known unto God are all his works from the beginning. He alone knows the end from the beginning, and he demonstrates that to authenticate that message that he sent to you. It's in your laps. It gets better. It gets better. When did the flood end? We all know about the flood, Genesis 6, 7, 8, flood. But in eight, chapter 8, verse 4, the flood comes to an end. Okay? And we notice in verse 4 of Genesis 8, it says the ark, the Noah's ark, the ark rested the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the seven, uh, of the, the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. Now, if you are a normal, well-adjusted Bible reader, you go ahead and keep reading. But if you've been to one of my Bible studies, you are no longer a normal, well-adjusted reader because you remember I told you every detail is there deliberately. Every detail, every number, every place name in the Bible is there on purpose. The Holy Spirit had a purpose in it. Well, why are the Holy Spirit want you to know that the ark came to rest. I mean, who cares? No, it came to rest on the seventh month, 17th day of that month on the mountains of Arad. Now for this one, you need to do a little bit of homework. You need to understand that the Jews have two calendars. And uh, the Genesis calendar is the one that they celebrate even to this day. 
The beginning of the year is in the month of Tishri, in the fall. And that's called the head of the year, Rosh Hashanah. So that's their civil calendar, what I'll call the Genesis calendar. However, they were given in Exodus 12, the Exodus calendar, where God tells them to make that month, the month in Nisan, in the spring, the beginning of their months, because that's where he establishes Passover. And you may recall that in Exodus 12, verse 2, God says, this month, Nisan, shall be unto you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first month of the year unto you. So now you got two calendars with two different beginnings. You need to just keep them straight. And so if you compare these, of course, in the Genesis calendar, Tishri is the first month, and in the, in the uh, uh, Exodus calendar, Nisan is the first month, which is the seventh month of the Genesis calendar. Nisan is the seventh month of the Genesis calendar. And it's the Genesis calendar that records the ark coming to rest on the 17th day of the seventh month. So let's put this together. Jesus was crucified on Passover, the 14th of Nisan. How long was Jesus in the, in the tomb? Anyone? Three days. Four days, what? Three days, okay, great, exactly. So that means he was resurrected on the 17th day of Nisan, which is the seventh month of the Genesis calendar. You with me so far? You say, so what? Here's why. Do you realize that Noah's new beginning on the planet Earth was on the anniversary in advance of our new beginning in Jesus <laughs> wow. Christ? Wow. Praise God. That's wonderful. Do you get the feeling that God knows what he's doing? Do you get the feeling that he's in control of every detail? Praise his holy name. He's orchestrating even the flood of Noah and the timing ties, coordinates with the whole gospel story. Praise God. Amen. The more you study your Bible, you'll discover these connections, these coincidences. Now, the rabbis will tell you that coincidence is not a kosher word. Okay. okay. The, Old Test the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Let's take the brazen serpent. I love this one. It's one of the weirdest stories in the Bible. It's not explained. The brazen serpent. It's in Numbers 21, for those of you who want to study it later. The people spake against God and against Moses, and wherefore you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, where there's no bread, there's no and water. Our soul loathed this light bread, meaning the manna. They hated the manna. Lord, and so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people that bit the people much afraid. They call it fiery because the poison stings, it, it burns. And so the, uh, that bit the people, and much people died from these snake bites. And they're, now they're upset about that and they repent. Then the people spake against God. Oh, excuse me, i got to get the next slide. Okay. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And God resorts to a most strange remedy here. The Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Wow. So Moses, Moses made a serpent of brass, put it on a pole, up on a hill, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bit any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. So God set it up. So here's this brass serpent on a pole up on a hill somewhere, and up a copper or bronze. I won't get into the brass issue right now. 
but uh, what, what, why is God doing this? There's no explanation. We take a look. A serpent is what? A figure of evil or sin, isn't it? And uh, a brass, why brass? That's the metal that could sustain fire, so it symbolizes judgment. Is this an idiom for judgment? You can search the entire Old Testament and never have this explained. Very, it's a, you know, come on, it's, you know, it is a pretty strange remedy that God set up here to heal. If he's going to heal these people, why did he do it that way? He chose to do it that way, and, he, and they did. In fact, this particular remedy creates a problem because that brazen serpent becomes an idol to worship. Many centuries later, King Hezekiah discovers they're, they're, they're uh, praying to this. He destroys it. In 2 Kings 18, uh, Hezekiah is doing what's right before the Lord. According to all his, what his father David, he removed the high places, broke the images, cut down the groves, and all that. And, uh, and for the, under those days, the children of Israel did burn incense to it. That is the, the brazen serpent that Moses made. He called it Nehushtan, which means a thing of brass. And he destroys it. But they never explain why did God do it that way. There's no evidence of that. In fact, this becomes the symbol of the medical profession. It leads to a legend called the uh, Escalapius. And the rod of Escalapius was used. That legend has its roots, of course, in Numbers 21. Mm -hmm. Now, in America, they have a way of messing things up. You know, they, they thought, gee, uh, two, two serpents look a little more symmetrical. So they, not un, they call it the caduceus, which is the wand of Hermes, which is the symbol of merchandising. Remember, beloved, so I'm going to go ahead and pause this real quick. If you don't have any idea about the caduceus and symbolism and Greek mythology and all the stuff that uh, America was built on, go back to one of my podcasts called Pharmakia, and it will enlighten you as to what is... Uh, what this serpent is all about and how that serpent, that old serpent, deceived the entire world. A doctor with his car on a on the license plate with a caduceus, it's a, you can know he's going to charge you too much, you see. <laughs> now these things happened as examples, the scripture tells us. Whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through the comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. They're written for our admonition, and so on. And so, so let's move on here. Let's see. It isn't until you get to the New Testament and you're in the Gospel of John and Nicodemus, the, leader, the leading teacher in that region, came to Jesus and Jesus explains it to him then. John 3, verse 14, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, the, uh, it's astonishing to me to realize that that's the first place in the Bible this peculiar event of Numbers 21 is explained. And then you suddenly realize that that's why God had the serpent in the wilderness as an indicator, as a foreshadowing of the cross, deliberately, in advance. Did the people of Israel understand that? I doubt it. But God planted it there to be assigned to us because it leads to the most well-known verse in the entire Bible, verse 16 of John 3. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Praise God. Okay, so it, 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 this is one of these things. See, in, 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 in uh, Gentile terms, prophecy is a prediction and fulfillment. Prediction and fulfillment. In the Hebrew mind, prophecy is pattern. All through the scripture you see patterns set up that are, for, that are predictions. And the Numbers 21, the brazen serpent, is a prediction of the cross, interestingly enough. Socrates was recorded as saying, it may be that deity can forgive sins, but I do not see how. It's interesting, this guy had the perception to understand the problem. How can deity be righteous at the same time forgive sins? What's the, he saw the contradiction. I can't see how a deity can forgive sins. He never occurred to him that the deity might offer himself to be the payment for those sins. He understood the problem for more clearly than most people may, and yet he didn't see the solution to it. Because see, Paul tells us in the second Corinthian letter, chapter five, verse 21, speaking of Jesus, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You and I have no capacity to imagine what it means to have a holy God who's pure, unspoiled, made sin for us. We can't imagine what that embraces. Amen. He may have made him to be sin for us. Integrated design. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. It's a single 66 book penned by 40 different guys over almost 2,000 years. That's an integrated design. You can't prove the Bible. Yes, you can. You can prove it. You can demonstrate its integrity, and you can see where the, who it points to, how it authenticates Christ, and then how Christ authenticates the whole package. But let's take another glimpse of surprises that might be in the Bible. Uh, I always say that everything in there is there deliberately by design. People challenge, well, what about Numbers 2? Now, what are you going to make of that? Numbers 2. That's all these weird numbers. That, that what, may, what might be hidden behind the numbers and details of the camp of Israel here? Let's describe. Jesus said, the volume of the book is written of me. You need to discover for yourself that Jesus Christ is on every page of the Bible, not just the New Testament. And so, in, in Numbers chapter 2, we have the listings of all the 12 tribes of Israel. You have Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Then you have uh, Reuben, Simeon, and uh, Gad. And then you have uh, Ephraim, Manasseh, and uh, Benjamin. And finally, of course, you have Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. Now you realize there are 13 tribes, by the way. Don't get confused. They always speak of 12 tribes, but they cheat. Because if you want all 12, all of them, you want to call it 12, you take jo uh, Joseph and lump it together. If you want to take one out for some reason, Dan for one reason or Levi for another, you can still have 12 left over by taking Joseph and sp splitting him into two. Once you realize the game they're playing, you'll realize why they always have 12, whether or not Levi's included. He doesn't go to the line of march and battle, so you still have 12 going to battle. And there's, they're listed 20 times in the Old Testament, always in a different order, but it's always a subset of the, of the 13. But anyway, moving on here. So we also learn from Numbers 2 that these 12 tribes camped in four camps. The first three, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, camped under the ensign of Judah as the camp of Judah. So Reuben, Sibion, and Gad camped under the camp of Reuben, uh, Ephraim, Manasseh, and, Eph, uh, uh, and Benjamin 
under the ensign of Ephraim and Dan, Asher, Naphtali under Dan. And so they have four camps. Now, the Levites are camped in the middle. They set out an area where they set up the tabernacle in the middle of their area. And uh, the doorway is always to the east, and that's where Moses and the priests were camped. And then the, the Gershonites, Goethites, and Merarites camped around the tabernacle. But the whole area was the area assigned to the Levites. I don't know how big it was, but it's going to be the basic unit we're going to deal with here. The, the camps of the Levites. Why? Because we're going to discover that the rabbis worked very hard. They give them credit. They really worked hard to fulfill the law as precisely as they understood it. The rabbinical precision. The camp of Judah is instructed to camp east of the Levites. Fair enough. Camp of Reuben was the, east, the south of the Levites. No problem. But that means that no one can camp southeast because that's neither south nor east. So that's a vacant area, apparently. Only cardinal directions were ordained in the law. And the width of the camp, it would be as wide as the Levites' camp and still conform, but not larger than that. So it would go as long as they needed to for the population. Okay, let's take a look at this here. So we have the, camp, we have the 22,000 or so of the, uh, of the Levites in the middle, and we have the camp of Judah to the east, its ensign was, of course, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so those three tribes assigned to Judah would be encamped to the east. No problem there. Reuben was to be to the south. His ensign was the symbol of the man, and they camped to the south and only to the south. And then we have no one in the southeast, you understand, nor, nor the southwest, northwest, northeast. Those are vacant. Okay. Ephraim is to the west. And his symbol, his ensign was the ox and the three camps that make up the camp, the three groups, the three tribes that make up the camp, uh, camp to the, to the west. And then we have Dan, and his symbol was the eagle. Now you wonder, wait a minute, I remember Genesis 49, yeah. his ensign was a serpent. Lion, man, Except the Heezer, the, the head of the tribe, was uncomfortable with that. So we discover that what he does, he adopts an eagle with a snake in its mouth as his ensign. And that's where Dan picks up the eagle as a more comfortable ensign than the serpent, for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. And so, be that as it may, we now have the... Now what we need to do is figure out the, the populations. Judah is the largest with 186,000. Ephraim, to the, to the west, is only 108. It's the smallest. The other two are about the same. Let's, I want to show you an aerial picture that's in your Bible that we've just constructed here for you. It's the same thing that Balak, or excuse me, Balaam, when he was on the hill cursing Israel, as he looked down, what he saw. And that's what he Across. saw. Across, wow. That's an aerial view of the camp of Israel. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. All right, beloved brothers and sisters, I'm going to go ahead and stop the study right there because I'm just mind blown <laughs> just in that first 40 minutes. Um, or 39, 38 minutes. Wow, all the things that can be revealed if you properly study scripture, right? Not just open it and say, oh, I'm going to read some stories. <laughs> you have to study. You have to pray to Holy Spirit uh, to guide you. You have to open your heart and your mind to God's word and and go back to the genealogy and try to understand it. And, and wow, let Holy Spirit lead you to good teachers, 
right? People that will break it down in ancient language and show you the miraculous way God speaks to his people through his word. I do not have one doubt in my mind that every word in scripture is inspired by Holy Spirit. Mankind has tried to change and alter it. You know, unfortunately, that's happened, but I believe that Holy Spirit guides us to the most pertinent information in the Bible to help us gain understanding. And if you really want to know the truth, God's going to let you know it. But He's not going to force you, beloved. He's not going to force you to sit down watch videos, listen to stories, listen to, listen to, uh, preachers, listen to, I, like I said, I like to listen to people that go back to the old language, right? Because I believe it's important, you know, don't get stuck on the color of skin and the language we speak. God chose who he chose to be his people, but you can be adopted into the family of God just by being born again, beloved. So I plead with you today, if you are not walking with Jesus, if you have not accepted him as your Lord and Savior, I really, I really, I'm kind of begging you at this point, beloved. Fall to your knees. Ask him to show himself. Ask Holy Spirit to reveal to you the truth. Because what's written in the Bible is real. And if any of it can be proven as prophetic, then we need to be paying attention to what Revelation says. Open your eyes and ears, beloved. Your Father is trying to open up your eyes and your ears to His truth. Love each other. Be good to people today, beloved. We are all battling some things. We are to endure. With all that being said, I pray that you all have a wonderful day. I pray that this uh, message inspired you to read the Bible, inspired you to get to know God, inspired you to learn the truth about Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. Have a wonderful day. God bless you guys. Until next time.